Welcome, my name is Roger Rushing, and I am one of the pastors on staff here at New City, and I'm so glad that I get to be with you today. Uh, I hope that you will bear with me if my voice gives out a little bit. Uh, I'm actually the youth pastor here, and last week I was fortunate enough to get to take a bunch of our teens to camp, and it was an awesome experience. I think we have a picture of it here for you. This is us. This is the before, uh, before we left. Um, the after looks a little different. It was an awesome time, uh, but my throat hasn't quite recovered from the awesomeness, so my voice may go in and out. Uh, but yeah, so we're continuing our series. We're actually concluding our series on emotional intelligence today, and today we're talking about loneliness. And as you know, if you've been part of the series, if you've been coming to, to the services or if you've been watching online, uh, you know that we've been spending our time in the Sermon on the Mount. But if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, you may realize that there isn't a loneliness section. Uh, there's a great section on anger, a bunch of other stuff, but loneliness isn't explicitly talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment, but I do want to highlight uh, and review just a few of the passages that we've looked over during this time to see how it does clue us into kind of how we're built and what we're intended for and why loneliness is such a part of our lives. So the very first place I want to look at is when Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, he begins and says, pray like this, Our Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. See, the thing is, we pray our Father, and we even pray our Father when we're by ourselves. When I'm at home alone, and I'm praying this prayer, often in the shower, because that's where I pray a lot, but, but I'm praying this prayer. I don't pray my Father. I pray our Father. We're instructed to pray this way, and it and, and, and goes on throughout that prayer. All of the petitions are for our things, so we pray for our daily bread. We pray for, for our transgressions to be forgiven. We pray for our protection from temptation and our, our deliverance from evil. And after the prayer, Jesus highlights us even further. The next verse in verse 14 at the, at the end of the prayer, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So we begin to see that there's something going on here. We begin to see that there's more to this than just, just me, right? And all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we see that all of the instructions are plural. All of the, the blessings are plural. It's all taking place together, and that's not just because Jesus is speaking to a crowd. We see in Matthew 5, 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. See, God, God seems to be wanting more than just our offerings and our sacrifice and our, and our personal spirituality. God says, hey, if there's a problem, the best gift you can give me is go and work it out with your brother or your sister first. See, our spirituality is about more than just a personal, individual relationship with God. Don't get me wrong, that's part of it, and that's important, but it's about more than just me and Jesus. See, we're meant to be in relationship, and God cares about our relationships. Christianity isn't about individualism, but it's about community. In fact, in the ancient Mideast, where, where our scriptures come from and the culture that's taking place there, it, it was almost difficult for them to think about the individual. Everything happened in community. So you see even whole families or tribes bear the weight of one individual's sin. 
they also bear the redemption and grace, whether they were part of that activity or not. We see in the New Testament whole families get baptized and convert and follow after Christ because the head of the household is is touched and moved by this encounter with who Jesus is. And that's kind of a little bit hard for us to work our minds around. I know as as a youth pastor, I try to tell our teens, hey, you can't just live on your parents' faith. And there's truth to that. At some point, it it has to become ours. But it's still ours. We share in that heritage and in that faith. And, and really, there is, there is no faith apart from community because we are meant to be in relationship. God is relational and cares about our relationships. So we can see then that loneliness, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Now, I want to make a, a distinction here between loneliness and solitude because solitude can actually be a good thing. But the main distinction between solitude and loneliness is that solitude is a choice. And the pain and suffering of loneliness, it's forced upon us. There's a a cultural historian named uh, Dr. Faye Bound Alberti who wrote a book called A Biography of Loneliness. And she says this about uh, the difference between solitude and loneliness. She says, loneliness is an emotional lack that depletes us because it's associated with the absence of meaningful connections. Solitude is a rich experience where connections predominate. See, we can go off by ourselves in solitude, and it can actually be a strengthening of of connections. We can strengthen our connection to God. We can strengthen even our connection. If you go out into the woods or the mountains or volcanoes, you've had this experience where you, you just strengthen your connection even to the environment and the earth and creation. And weirdly, even in solitude, we can strengthen our connections to one another As we have that time, it's not uncommon that God brings to our heart and our minds people that we love and care about, and we pray for them, and we think about them, and we are grateful for them. And so those connections are actually uh, increased and enhanced by solitude, but not by loneliness. There's another really important distinction between loneliness and solitude, uh, and, and loneliness and just being alone, really. Being alone is an objective state. What I mean by that is, is it's something you can measure, it's something that you can see. So if I were the only one in this room right now, I would be alone. And you could see that from outside, and if you came inside, I am no longer alone. It's an objective state. But loneliness is a subjective feeling. See, I could feel alone, and you could walk in the room, and I might not feel any less alone. In fact, you could be in this room right now, gathered together, surrounded by people you may know or may not. You could be at home right now, sitting on the couch, surrounded by friends and family. You could even be in the midst of the people that know you best and that you love the most, and you could still feel loneliness. See, if it was just about being alone, if it was just that objective state, the solution is super easy. Just be with other people. But if you've experienced the pain of loneliness, you probably know that it's not uncommon to feel loneliness even when you're surrounded, even if you're at a party or a celebration, whatever it is. You can feel that loneliness and feel like like all that's kind of happening out here, but where you are, you're in that desolate place and you're still alone. You know, the word loneliness, it's interesting. It doesn't really enter into our vocabulary until the 19th century. It's probably weird for us to think about because loneliness feels so universal. 
but it doesn't really become part of our vocabulary in the way that we use it today until the, the 19th century. In the late 16th century, the word starts popping up, but at that time, it still has that objective quality. So if you talk about the lonely road, it's, it's not so much the feelings that go with it in this case, it's the fact that it's an isolated road, and it's just an objective thing. But as a feeling, it doesn't really show up until around 1814. During this time, there's all kinds of urbanization that's taking place. People are moving away from their ancestral lands, they're moving into cities, and, and they're moving away from you know, this generational, multi-generational home where you had all these different generations, like great-great-grandparents down to little babies, all living in the same household, and you knew your neighbors, and you worked as that village, you know, that whole thing where it takes a village to raise a kid. It's, it's kind of like that idea. But now, with urbanization comes this idea of private life. No longer, they're moving away, no longer from these multi-generational homes, to but, but just kind of your individual family. And you don't have the same relationship with your neighbors. You may not have grown up with them. You certainly haven't shared generations of the same land and worked side by side, plowing and growing and harvesting. And so it becomes, even though the, the group of people becomes more concentrated, the connections between them become less and less and less. And so it's interesting that it's this time where this idea of loneliness begins to pop up and surface more and more. So with this idea, it's, it's maybe not too surprising then that the word loneliness doesn't even appear in the Bible. Not once. In fact, if you do a search even for the word lonely, if you're searching the English Standard Version, which is the one we typically use, it only appears three times. It's all in the Old Testament. It's twice in the Psalms and once in Lamentations. And you could even argue that two of those are really talking more about that objective state. The only one that clearly isn't is Lamentations. You can make arguments for the others, but... But these are the only places that we see the word lonely even in the scriptures. So does that mean that nobody was ever lonely? No. We have plenty of examples of people in the Bible expressing in, this, in other ways this idea of loneliness. And so we see that even before there was this language of loneliness, there was this need for emotional connection. And when it wasn't there, there was something wrong. And so we have all these different examples, just to give a few that I don't even have to think very hard about. We see Moses, he was lonely at times. Gideon, Joseph, Joseph was lonely a lot. Uh, David even was lonely. Uh, Elijah, we, we have one of the clearest pictures of loneliness. He's so lonely. He feels like he's the only one, even though he's not. And he feels so lonely that he even begs God to end his life. So we see giving voice to this idea of loneliness, but I think it, what's different is now we're experiencing kind of this, this epidemic, it's even been, been called an actual epidemic of chronic loneliness. It's not just situational loneliness, it's this chronic loneliness. And it's ironic that in our ultra-connected world today, it seems like genuine connections are, being, are becoming harder and harder to foster. So we have all of this technology that can connect us all across space, uh, I mean, clear across countries and continents and oceans and around the world, and yet we find more and more that people are, are saying that they feel isolated and lonely and cut off from those meaningful, genuine connections. You know, I mentioned just a minute ago a, a list of some of the examples of what I see as loneliness in the scriptures, but I, I left a name off that list, and, and he's perhaps the most lonely man 
in all of Scripture who had experiences loneliness at a depth that nobody else does, and that's Jesus. I think that there are a few times that we can see it throughout the Gospels, but I think that the clearest representation, the clearest incident where we see Jesus suffering that pain of loneliness happens when he goes off to pray by himself. He goes off to pray by himself a lot. And again, sometimes solitude is good, but in this particular instance, it's different. See, his prayer is going to be taking place in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's towards the very end of Jesus' life. It's that, that evening that bleeds into morning, and it's the time right before Jesus is arrested and right after the Last Supper. And Jesus goes off to pray, and I, I want us to see this story, but I actually want to start one verse before the story, back at the end of the Last Supper. See, Jesus had had this last time with his disciples together to, to eat together and share this meal and to teach them one last thing. And at the end of it, he begins to talk about how Peter especially is going to deny him three times. And so the last, in Matthew's version, the last thing we see in the Last Supper is Matthew 26, verse 35. And Peter says to Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then catch this. We sometimes miss this part. And all the disciples said the same. So we're with you, Jesus. We don't know what's going to happen, but we are with you. And then we get to the next verse. It says, then Jesus went to them to a place called Gethsemane. Just a quick side note here. This, this word Gethsemane, it's Greek because that's what the New Testament's written in, but it's actually a transliteration of the Hebrew, which means uh, olive press. And it's the Mount of Olives is there, and, and, and there are olive presses there. But I think that the multiple gospel writers point out that he's in Gethsemane, and I think that we see that it's not going to be olives that are pressed there, but, but Jesus, who's going to be pressed almost to the point of being crushed. So Jesus goes to this place, and he went with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. But then... In verse 27, it says, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. In verse 38, he says, Then Jesus said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He's about, he's being pressed by all that lays before him. So much so that he feels like he might die. And in that place, in the grips of the olive press, he says to his disciples, the three key ones that he took with him, his closest inner circle, the ones who said, we will go with you even to death. And here Jesus is so close to death. And he asked them, remain here and watch with me. Be with me. I'm so troubled. Be with me in my troubles. And going a little farther, Jesus fell down on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but as you will. And so then he has this time, and it's not just this one sentence or a couple of sentences of prayers. It's this time where Jesus is, is grieving and striving and anguished and being pressed. And then he takes a break from this prayer and he came to the disciples, the ones who said, I will go with you to death, the one who said, I'm near death, stay with me, just stay with me. And he finds them sleeping. 
how lonely Jesus must be when his inner circle, the ones that he could depend upon most, can't even stay awake with him at the time of his greatest suffering. And he wakes him up. <laughs> so could you not watch one hour with me? He doesn't just let them sleep. He says, come on, guys. I need you. And he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for a second time, he goes away and prays, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass, but, but not my will, but yours be done. And again, he comes and he finds them sleeping. So he leaves them again. And he goes again praying, and he comes back to them, and finally he says, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The very next thing that happens is Judas leads a group of men armed and ready to take Jesus uh, and arrest him and take him to trial. And the signal he works out with these men is he says, the man that I kiss, <laughs> he's the one. Judas was at the Last Supper. Judas was at the last three years. Judas was one of Jesus's. And he comes and now and he betrays his teacher and his friend, his rabbi, with a kiss. So Jesus was betrayed. He was arrested and he was abandoned by every single one of those disciples who said, we'll go with you even to death. See, Jesus knows loneliness. And we see it even further on as Jesus is being crucified towards the end, one of the last breaths that he takes and some of the last words are found in Matthew 27, verse 46. It says about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemai sabachthani, which is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus is feeling this pain, not only being abandoned by his disciples, but now it is so great. The press is crushing him to the point where he even feels forsaken by God, who he doesn't even dare call Father here. And you may know that Jesus is actually reaching back and echoing words of another very lonely man, David, from Psalm 22 which starts with that same phrase, and it was likely written by David after the death of his beloved son, after Absalom was killed. David was so stricken by grief, he couldn't even carry on his kingly duties. He too wanted to die, and there was nobody that seemed to know what he was feeling, and it seemed like even there, God had forsaken him. But now it's not the bereaved father but a dying son who cries out these desperately lonely words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows loneliness. After Jesus died, they took him and they placed him in a tomb, a tomb where, where for three days, not even the witness of the scriptures can accompany him, so we don't know exactly what goes on there. We can't be sure of what it was like, but but I can only imagine what it must have been, whatever that experience could be, there had to be loneliness and separation, at least for part of it. So while we don't know exactly what Jesus experienced there, I can say without a doubt that Jesus knows loneliness. See, Jesus doesn't just know loneliness. He doesn't just know betrayal and crucifixion, and death in the grave, but Jesus also knows resurrection. 
Jesus knows new life. Jesus experiences betrayal and abandonment and utter loneliness. He knows all too intimately the, the cry, David's cry of forsakenness, but he also lives the words of another psalm, Psalm 23. One of the most famous psalms in all of Scripture it begins, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Skipping to verse 4, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, Jesus knows that comfort, the comfort even in the shadow of death. He knows the comfort of the presence of God. See, Jesus not only knows loneliness, but Jesus redeems loneliness. Jesus goes before us to the olive press. To the olive press of anguish and despair, Jesus goes before us even to the place of forsakenness where he fulfills the promise of Deuteronomy 31.6 that says, it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Jesus goes before us even to the grave so that there is now no place that we can go where the good shepherd's rod and staff cannot bring us comfort. You know, Yogi Berra has all these famous sayings, and one of his famous sayings is, wherever you go, there you are. But Jesus shows us that wherever we go, God is there. Wherever we go, God is already there. And this, this is a healing balm that for now is a remedy. See, there is no cure for loneliness. We will all experience loneliness. I would be willing to bet we have all already experienced loneliness. And there is not right now a cure for loneliness, but what we see is this healing balm that for now is a remedy, but that one day when all things are made new, on that day when death is no more, when pain and suffering is no more, when God wipes away every one of our tears from our eyes, on that day we will see the remedy becomes the cure and no one will be lonely anymore. Because Jesus not only knows loneliness, but Jesus redeems loneliness. Here's another important thing for us to see. Jesus doesn't just know what it is to be lonely. He doesn't just know what his experience of loneliness was, what his own personal loneliness was, but Jesus knows your loneliness. He knows my loneliness. He knows it intimately. He knows it as well, if not better than we do. Jesus knows your loneliness, but Jesus also redeems your loneliness. Even in your loneliness, Jesus is there. Even in your loneliness, you are not alone. You're not alone. But we feel alone, right? We still feel alone. Like I said, just because we're Christians, it doesn't mean that loneliness goes away. There's not this cure. It's not this get out of loneliness card, right? Loneliness is there. And so even though we know that we are not alone, we still feel so alone at times. Like nobody can understand. That's kind of the irony of loneliness. Is it's something that so many people feel around the world. Around the world, England, by the way, seems to be the worst if you look at stats. They feel the loneliest, but the U.S. is pretty close behind. 
But millions and millions of people say, I feel so lonely. And yet loneliness also convinces us that nobody else feels the way I do. Nobody can understand that pain and that suffering that I feel. And so it isolates us. So even though we might know that we are not alone, and we might say, great, God won't leave me or forsake me, but I can't feel God right now. So I feel so alone. So what do we do? First thing I think that we need to do is, is again, remember that Christians aren't exempt from loneliness. We're not exempt from loneliness, and loneliness isn't necessarily the result of a spiritual flaw or a lack of faith. Now, it could be, right? If I'm not living my life uh, in accordance with who God is, I'm not living according to God's will and, and desire for my life and the goodness that God offers me, if I'm not seeking to cultivate my relationship with God, if I'm not taking time to foster that connection, it will be harder and harder and harder for me to sense the ever-present presence of God. It doesn't mean that I'm forsaken or that God has abandoned me, but it can be harder and harder for me to feel God's presence with me. But that does not mean that any time I have a hard time feeling God's presence with me must mean I've messed up, that it's because of my sin and my lack of faith, and if I just believed more or prayed harder or did more quiet time and fostered that relationship more, then suddenly it would go away. Because it's not always and often isn't the result of some lack of faith or spiritual flaw. And it could be even with others, right? If I'm living my life in such a self-centered way where I only care about myself and I see you and my relationship with you as something to be used and maybe even abused, let's just call it what it is. If I'm just a total jerk, I might drive you all away, right? That's a spiritual problem that results in loneliness, but if I feel isolated from you and I feel like nobody else is with me, even when I'm in a room that's filled with people, it doesn't necessarily mean that I've got this spiritual flaw. Again, we saw example after example in the scriptures and prime among them, Jesus. So if Jesus feels loneliness, I mean, you can't convince me it's because he's doing something wrong. In fact, he feels loneliness because he's doing what he's called to do. Even the most spiritually vibrant people experience loneliness. So what do we do? If we're lonely, what do we do? Well, if we go back to what was said about what loneliness is, it's that lack, that absence of meaningful connection. So what do we need to do to kind of remedy that and to help that and to mitigate that pain? We need to make those connections. If we're lonely, we need to reach out. We need to be able to be vulnerable with people around us and say, hey, I don't know how you could possibly understand, but could you just sit with me here, because I'm so lonely. But here's the thing, if you've experienced that loneliness, you know it's hard. It's really hard to reach out in those places. So we need to work on, on cultivating those relationships where we can, we can experience that vulnerability and be open and truthful with others and just completely vulnerable. We have to cultivate those relationships even before we think we need them. So we need to build community and foster those relationships and genuine connections when we're not lonely too. Because that's when it is at least easier. It's not easy. For some of you it is. For me it's not. It's not easy, but it's easier. Another way that we can kind of combat our loneliness is we can serve. We can serve with others. We can serve others because when we serve with one another, we recognize that there's this need 
and then I have something that can be a part of, of easing that need and carrying that burden, and what that does is it connects us. There's a genuine connection, and sometimes in serving we give, but we also receive, and through that we have genuine relationship. So if you want to mitigate loneliness, serve. Look around you and say, how can I help this person? How can I walk with this person? You can even look around and say, who else is feeling like they're the only one that feels this way? And you can tell them, me too. I also feel this way. And in so doing, you have connection and two people's loneliness begins to at least get a little bit lighter. But again, I know this is really hard to do. And sometimes loneliness can get so, so difficult and so dark that it can be almost paralyzing. So what we need in those moments is we need, we need someone to come and be with us. We need someone to come and be with us. And so what we need to do is we need to reach out to those who are lonely. We need to be looking for those who are suffering and attentive to those who are suffering in the dark and the cold shadows of loneliness. And then we must be willing to come alongside them, to walk with them through that valley to embody the presence of God for them. Look again at, at Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, in those moments, it's not just the knowledge that God is with us that brings us comfort. It is the palpable, tangible presence of God. It's feeling God's presence that brings comfort. But sometimes, when it's dark enough and the valley is cold enough, we may be in a place where, where we can't feel the comfort of God's presence. So we must enter into that valley with them. If somebody's in that place where they're not comforted by the rod and the staff and they're even saying, maybe God has forsaken me, we need to go into that place and enter it and walk alongside them. And as we do, we embody the presence of God for them. We make the invisible God visible to them. We make the intangible God tangible to them. We make the unfelt God felt through our touch, through our embrace, through our shoulder that they cry on. See, even if we don't know the words to say, when we're willing to walk alongside them, when we're willing to walk alongside the lonely, even if it means walking in really uncomfortable silence, when we're willing to suffer with them and to let their pain become our pain as well, then we become for them the hands, the feet, the face, the voice, and the heart of Jesus there in that dark valley of death. And in that place, we then are, are able to say to them, and not just us, but Jesus through us can say to them, hey, you are loved just the way you are. That you are not forsaken or abandoned that Jesus is here with you, that you are not alone. There's something else that's really interesting that happens when we're willing to walk through the valley with the one who is lonely. See, Jesus told us about whatever we do for the least, whatever we do for the least of these, whatever we do for the, the least, the lost, the outcast, the lonely, the sick, the hurting, whatever we do for the least, we do for Jesus. So here's this opportunity we have. This might not blow you away, but it blows me away. Here's the opportunity that we have. 
it's almost like we get to travel back in time. We get a chance to go to that garden, to that place where Jesus is being pressed. We get to go back there and hear the request of the suffering servant, the one who is facing torture and death and the grave for our sake. We get to hear his words as he asks us to pray with him, to keep watch with him, to stay with him. And we get a chance to do just that. Think about how amazing that is to be able to bring even some relief to the one who suffers so greatly for us. We have that chance. So when we see someone suffering the pain of loneliness, even if they're not able to utter the words, let us hear the voice of our Savior pleading with us to pray with them, to keep watch with them, to stay with them. Let us not fall asleep, but let us do just that. Let us be with them, and let us be that present reminder that they are not alone. Let's pray. God, I just come to you today in gratitude. I thank you, Lord, that you do not leave us or forsake us. God, I have confessed many a time how I feel like you've abandoned me. And yet time and time again, even in those darkest places where I was shaking my fist at you, God, and saying, why? Why have you done this to me? You are bringing along people from, from the church, people from your body, to come and sit with me and be with me and cry with me. God, I pray today that if there are those here who are feeling that loneliness, that we would be attentive to it that we would, we would be administers of your healing balm and that we would come alongside. Let us be willing to hurt and for our hearts to break. And I'm reminded of that place that loneliness does appear in Lamentations, where the city is so lonely. It's become like a widow. God, may we see the loneliness of our city but may we not abandon it, but may we move into it. And as we move into those dead places, bring your new life. And may this city become a beacon, a beacon for the lonely and a beacon for others to see that here God is at work and healing is happening. God, I just thank you for our chance to be a part of that with you. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.